I was glad we sung that song before this chapter because as we will see, what the Lord does to Egypt is also not just Israel's history, but anyone who's in the Lord is, it's their history as well. And he is our God in ages past. So please follow along as I read Exodus chapter 10. This is the account of the locust and darkness signs. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve Yahweh your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said, Yahweh be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve Yahweh, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin. Excuse me. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. 
So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with Yahweh. And Yahweh turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people go, people of Israel go. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Father, bless the reading of your word. Would you bless the preaching of your word? Highlight your son, your son who faced his own three days of darkness. Bring him glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. At the end of this chapter, what could possibly upset Pharaoh so much that he threatens to kill Moses? Pharaoh is angry and scared. He is angry and scared. And these signs, the plagues, are increasing in severity. I am calling these signs that we read in here um, not the eighth and ninth plagues because God says he's bringing all sorts of signs and the text doesn't actually number them. But we know that when Moses started doing signs in front of uh, Pharaoh in the courtroom with Aaron's staff swallowing the magician's staffs to the Red Sea parting, there are 12 signs. There's not just 10 signs of the plagues. There are 12. And you might actually even say 13 because the one sign that keeps happening again and again and again is the chief sign that shows Yahweh's in charge, and that is Pharaoh's heart is being hardened. So there are all sorts of signs. I know we traditionally say this is like, okay, the 10 plagues. But nevertheless, these are increasing in, in severity. First, okay, a staff turns into a snake or a crocodile. We talked about that. And swallowed up the magicians. And they become worse and worse and worse. The Nile turns the blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies. And the hail was, you, you almost couldn't think it gets any worse. 
Pharaoh might have even thought it can't get any worse. But remember that word he said in chapter 9, I'm going to bring all my plagues against you. Actually, I'm going to bring all the rest of my plagues against you. The hail plague was only the first and the last sequence of plagues. And the next two are locusts and darkness. But what makes this so bad? What makes these plagues so bad? The locusts and the darkness, no one dies. I know that happens. It's just it's the age we live in. No one even dies in these plagues. There are dead bodies, dead cows, dead camels, dead flocks, annihilated crops from the hail. That seemed to be like the worst possible judgment. But they get worse. The warfare, which God is bringing upon Egypt, isn't the, it's not the same tactic each time. He has kind of switched up his tactics now. And it may be appropriate, as the title of the sermon suggests, of that wartime slogan that we've heard throughout our history of it as a nation, might be pretty appropriate here that, that God is actually kind of battling and winning over hearts and minds of, of Egypt. He's not just doing it with brute force. He's actually employing emotional and psychological attacks against Egypt to show them coming against God will completely reverse the created order. All things will be completely abnormal. Nothing will be the same as it should be. Life will be upside down, topsy-turvy. And just what you expect to happen doesn't happen. And I think that's, I think a good illustration of what Yahweh is doing here. He is winning over or employing attacks that are psychological and emotional. And in doing so, he's actually causing Pharaoh's own people to doubt Pharaoh's own sovereignty. A divided kingdom against itself. So, we've heard that phrase before. Maybe, I don't know, some of you are old enough to remember Lyndon B. Johnson, Vietnam, or the Iraq War. But he's winning over hearts and minds. Not only is he showing himself to be the Lord of Israel, but he's also dividing Egypt and causing Egypt to be put to fright and frankly, shook. So life will be uncertain, normalcy, societal expectations of how the sun should rise and set and things go on as they should go on, gone gone with the darkness and the locust before, of course, the last, the last, one of the last plagues with the death of the firstborn. So this is God's warfare against Egypt. He's bringing, there are many, many motifs, themes in the Bible of what salvation is or what it's pictured like. Um, some of those might be a courtroom scene where a judge pronounces the guilty party righteous or innocent. Okay, 
Sometimes the Bible shows a salvation motif as an adoption of a person into the family. Okay, There are a lot of motifs. The earliest and one of maybe, maybe the most primary motifs is that salvation is war. Salvation is war. It is not just as wonderful as it is about having sins forgiven. What Christ did was war. And the battle belongs only to him. He doesn't draft soldiers. <laughs> he's not employing anybody. He's taking the battle to the enemy and he's doing that himself. So when we read this and we see Yahweh just pouring out his power against Egypt, this all comes from one simple thing. Back in Exodus chapter 2, you remember, this is a couple chapters ago, but during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And he heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. When someone cries out to God for help, Christ goes to battle. When Christ came on earth and took on flesh, he wasn't just some pacifist, non-confrontational, passive guy. He was warring against the powers of darkness, which held all of us under its sway. We were afraid of sin, death, devil, and we were captives. We were were POWs, prisoners of war. And we were in Satan's house. And Christ comes to destroy that house. I know we've said that many times going through these sign and plague accounts. But as we kind of start to wrap this up, we must be told again, God views your salvation a matter to fight over. He battles for you. He fights. You might wonder, I don't even know if I'm worth fighting for. That's the Lord's prerogative. But this is how Christ has taken up our plight of sin. He takes the battle to the enemy. So just as Yahweh here is is crushing, crushing Israel's enemy's house, so Christ in the gospel is constantly crushing the enemy's home and plundering his property. So we're going to look at how this starts to wrap up here with, first off, God's great army. God has a great, great army. And it's not the the Marines, the SEALs of what you would think they are. They're bugs, locusts. That's God's great army. So powerful is God. He doesn't need to employ giants or Nephilim or any buddy like that he'll just bring a bunch of bugs and he will utterly subdue an empire 
So the locusts here are not unfamiliar to Pharaoh. Pharaoh would know that locusts come seasonally, annually, at various times. And they, when they come, they eat up everything. Locust swarms in the lower delta region of the Nile where this is taking place happened all the time. But God is bringing a super swarm, a supernatural sized swarm of locusts that Egypt has never even seen the size of before. And you notice it says in verse Six. Your fathers haven't seen it. Even your granddaddies haven't seen it. Everybody likes to appeal to their granddaddies and say, oh, well, what our granddaddies did. They were the best generation. They, they have seen it. They have had it the worst. Moses says, nobody is going to see such a swarm like this. Okay. And he's doing this because Pharaoh still hasn't learned his lesson. So he's stubbornly resistant. He refuses to humble himself. God is bringing this swarm of locusts. If the frogs and the gnats and the flies were enough to humble Pharaoh and cause him to ask Moses, stop it, right? Stop it. I'm okay. Waving the white flag, mercy, uncle, surrender. The locusts, those are going to pale in comparison with the locusts too. Funny enough, we were eating dinner after I was studying this one day and the grasshopper showed up on the screen door. I'm like, ah, locusts. <laughs> but locusts were absolutely everywhere. I'm not saying that was a sign, but it wanted to get into the house. And these locusts were going everywhere. They weren't held back to where they initially would go. Fields, crops, they were going into the homes, into the houses of Pharaoh, the houses of his servants, of all the Egyptians. They were completely marauding the land. And it says in here a couple times, what didn't die or what was left over from the hail was eaten. Now, you guys remember the hail plague. The hail was a humbling, humbling plague where if the people didn't fear the warning of the Lord and get their livestock into the homes, get their slaves into the homes, they're going to die. These hailstones are going to fall upon these people and on these camels and herds and flocks and livestock and crush them, kill them. And so when the, the, the sky parted and the storm cloud stopped, they would have definitely seen all sorts of life dead. The crops would have been just broken over. It would have been complete annihilation, almost. But what didn't die or wasn't destroyed from the hail, the locusts came and ate up. Completely completely crippling Egypt. Yeah, the locusts didn't bite anyone. They didn't kill anyone. They practically did, though. What does an empire do with no food? With no labor force? Or even oxen? 
no f- no crops, no fields, and it says no green thing remained. Now, it is typical that the Hebrews write in hyperbole. doesn't mean every single bush was eaten up, but it does mean that it was such a blow to Egypt that there was, practically speaking, nothing left. Oh, there might have been some shrub, you know, in some little pot somewhere. But practically speaking, everything was gone. Now, some of you have worked as ranchers or in fields, and and you know what would happen if in one fail swoop, in a matter of hours maybe, a couple days maybe, all those acres were gone. Your profit, the food, gone. You'd say life is over. Life is over. We have been completely crippled. And that's what happened to Egypt. Completely turned upside down. And and Pharaoh would see uh, most ancient Near Eastern uh, empires, countries, nations, saw locust swarms as a sign of divine judgment. a a divine curse. How much more would this super swarm be? I mean, this would be like something I'd love to see on like planet earth of like, how big would this thing be? They would completely eat up everything. And of course they had no McDonald's fast foods. I mean, they were completely reliant on what's growing out of the ground. When something grows out of the ground and dies, they got no food. So life here was turned upside down. Economically, they were on the brink. Labor force, huge unemployment. (laughs) Huge unemployment. If they didn't die from the hail or get run out of town or whatever it would be, the labor force is gone. The food is gone. The flocks, the crops Economically, they'd be crippled. Religiously, Egypt has been humiliated. All their so-called gods defeated. And civilly or governmentally, the order of society was chaos. Absolutely chaos. So we have to wonder, why does Pharaoh say in verse 17, remove this death from me? He never said about any other plague, this is death. Not only is this going to prefigure what was about to happen with the death of the firstborn. However, so bad was this that he said in a confession, unlike the other ones, I've sinned, forgive me, and remove this death from me. He saw the locust as a nail in the coffin. The Pharaoh was responsible for keeping order, harmony, and justice in society. Egyptians called it ma'at. It just is simply a national virtue like many we would have today. A nation that is known for being hardworking or pursuing excellence or something like that. Egypts have theirs. Theirs was ma'at. And that in ma'at, Ma'at stood for justice, order, and harmony. There's no harmony. 
the circle of life. <laughs> Sorry, I can't think of it. <laughs> we all know what we're thinking. Okay, okay. Yeah. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> the circle of life, broken. Completely broken. No harmony, no order. Everything is chaos. Under God's wrath, creation has been reversed. So what they would expect to happen doesn't happen. It is a sign of decreation. Reversal of the created order. Man was made an image bearer to rule over the plants and animals in the sky, the sea, and the earth. And yet, gnats, flies, frogs, and locusts are ruling, driving people mad. God instilled governments to keep order for society. And this is like the planet of the apes. Everything is backwards. (laughs) Even the servants of Pharaoh are giving counsel to Pharaoh. That's backwards. That's not how life should be. Kings are supposed to be wise. They're supposed to be the leaders. They're supposed to be the ones giving counsel. And yet, so hard is Pharaoh's heart that the servants of Pharaoh in verse 7 say, don't you get it? We're ruined. And this is before the locusts. We are utterly ruined. Get them out of here. So it it shows that, you know, the divine hardening of Pharaoh's heart was unlike just a natural response to some kind of cataclysmic plague. Pharaoh's heart was hard in a way in which the, the servants' hearts were not. Even the servants saw that their king was out of it. Life was upside down. And I just find it ironic, providential, that here Egypt is, uh, Israel is leaving Egypt in a matter of days, and Egypt has no food. And a Jew was brought into Egypt during a famine, and by taking the Jews' counsel, Joseph's, they survived the famine. And here, this Pharaoh, who hates the Jews, won't take the Jews' counsel, and thus receives famine. How many times do we see in the Bible, the trap they laid for me, they will fall in themselves? That's all over the Proverbs and all over the Psalms. But here, to prove his displeasure with Pharaoh, Yahweh is showing what life is like when you reject the creator of all life. What is the creator of all life who upholds all things by the word of his power? What does he have to do in order to cause all things into chaos? Simply stop upholding it. He doesn't even have to pour out his wrath. 
Psalm 104, many passages show us that life is sustained and kept up by God. He takes away the breath, things dissolve. Here, God is no doubt bringing his wrath upon Egypt, but he is showing that things devolve from a a fertile land, a, a powerful nation to a waste and desolate place when God judges. What's the judgment of the creator of life going to do? No life. Life? No life. So he brings in his mighty army and he completely, completely humbles Pharaoh. Pharaoh confesses, I've sinned against Yahweh and against you. Therefore, forgive my sin. I'm not going to spend any time on this because all these confessions are the same. They're, they're, they're either not sincere or they're done with just getting the pain away, which all parents know that's, that's not sincere. <laughs> but this, as we said last week, this is the point of no return. What has Moses done when Pharaoh has asked him to intercede? He's interceded. And as we saw last, last chapter, Moses has interceded even when he knows your confession is insincere. There's no intercession anymore. He tells Moses, he brings him, hey, I've sinned against you, against, against the Lord. Please forgive my sin. Only this once. Plead with me. Remove this death from me. He goes out and it and it passes away, the, the locusts leave, but then right on the heels, there really didn't even shouldn't be a division between 20 and 21, darkness comes. So God's army comes, and now we see the God of the darkness here. God brings darkness upon Egypt, a most unusual and terrifying sign for the Egyptians. Pure darkness. It says in verse 21, a darkness to be felt. <laughs> I don't think this is the same as like putting yourself in the closet and like, wow, I can't even see my hand. This is way worse <laughs> than that. A darkness to be felt. The da- this darkness would no doubt terrify Pharaoh. And this is the last attack on the gods of Egypt. He, Yahweh has kind of given their idols a reprieve for a while, but now he slays the last so-called God of Egypt. The Egyptians fight and venerate with actually multiple deities, Ra or Re, a tomb, Amun, Amun Re. Even Pharaoh himself was associated with the sun as he's called the son of Re or the son of Ra. This darkness would showcase their entire lifestyle life is done. Cease to exist. Everything you know about routine life and normal life, Egyptians and Pharaoh, for one, is not in your control, and two, it's gone. It's gone. 
this intense judgment that has come upon Egypt, the darkness, the most terrifying. It's not just that there was no darkness, it was proof. All that they relied on, their gods, were gone, false. They're alone. They're alone. No one to help, no hope. And this darkness was not just an eclipse. It was not like a thick fog that rolled in. It was unnatural. It was supernatural. Definitely unnatural. It lasted for exactly three days. And no one saw each other, nor did anyone move from their place. It, it even says in verse 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. It doesn't even say from his home, but like most likely wherever they were, when the darkness came on, they just stayed. They just stayed put. They couldn't see anyone. So this is unnatural light, uh, unnatural darkness. There was no light whatsoever. There was no sunlight for sure. There was no starlight. There was no moonlight. There was no candlelight. Darkness everywhere. We've all had the power go out on us. And the first thing we do is, oh, I, I'll get that lantern. Hopefully the batteries are alive. <laughs> there is no light at all. Life had come to a complete pause. And this once powerful nation stopped in its tracks. Again, their entire existence of what they know to be true, gone. I mean, as an American, what would we say, nationally speaking, would be an absolute crippling of our, of our country? Let's say all three branches of government have been destroyed. And, well, I, I guess this has happened lately. A hurricane hits the West Coast. <laughs> Who has heard of that? But let's say various natural phenomena happen, and then our, our government, our societal infrastructure is gone, no freeways. What would we do? We would say, what is life? I don't even know what life is about. I don't even know what to do anymore. That's what the Egyptians are facing. They're realizing they're not just overwhelmed by Yahweh and that they're outgunned by Yahweh. They're questioning life, their existence. It's bizarro world. But there was light in Goshen. There was light in Goshen where Israel lived. 
We've seen this for the last few of them, last few plagues. None of these judgments fell upon God's people. None of them. There was light in Goshen where the people lived. And we must wonder, what is Israel thinking? What is going through their mind as they have witnessed this? They've probably seen some of it. Maybe they even saw the locusts pass over them. Maybe they saw a black blob, cloud, whatever, in the distance, but there was light over them. But we must ask, what were they thinking? I, th- I think what they were thinking was what we read in 2.23. Yahweh has come. And he's answered our prayer. And he's bringing the fight to Egypt. How humbling would they have been, humbled would they have been that finally the 430 years are done. We're no longer going to be slaves. This cruel infant, infant killing nation is getting what is due them. God is judging them. They call out for help, and God answers. Let me just turn this real quick. What we see here, you may not think all the dramatic stuff happens, is what happens when a sinner calls out to Christ, and Christ wars with the enemy, on the sinner's behalf. When a sinner confesses, repents, believes in Jesus, or let me just put it this way, in history, the reason why Jesus came to earth was to, as John would say, destroy the works of the devil. Salvation is war. There are a lot of wonderful motifs and themes in the Bible. Chief, chief is war, warfare. And this is, in fact, what we have first seen. When when Adam and Eve fell, What was the pronouncement? I will put enmity between your seed, you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's speaking to the serpent. What do we have in this one verse but the promise of salvation but salvation set in the context of war. You have two parties. You have the woman and her offspring. And then you have the, sat- uh, the serpent, Satan, and his offspring. 
And these two parties have enmity. That's war. Two parties battling over goods or people is war. Jesus comes to earth to battle and destroy the powers of darkness. And if we're ever wondering like, well, this is a, I mean, he's not going to bring a plague of darkness on my behalf and help out my bullies or, or whatever it is. I'll just say this, read the first half of Psalm 18 and you will see how David saw his salvation and in what kind of colors he saw his salvation. He said, when God saved him, the earth rocked and reeled and thunder peals and lightning and fire and all this stuff happened. Did it actually happen? No, that didn't actually happen in David's life. But what he is saying is this, God came forth and he fought David's battle. And in the same way, when the believer or a sinner asks for help, Christ picks up the battle. In Jesus's very first sermon in Luke, recorded in Luke, and, and this is actually what um, caused people so angry that they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He opened his ministry by saying, this section of, of Isaiah 61 is going to be fulfilled in your hearing. He opens his ministry with, I have been sent to open the eyes of the blind and stop the ears of the deaf, so forth and so on. And then to proclaim liberty to captives and to set at liberty the oppressed. Now, we get into all funny business when we start thinking about um, maybe oppression of, uh, I don't know, self-esteem or uh, oppression of racial things or whatever like that. Jesus is saying, I'm declaring war upon the enemy, Satan, devil, Apollyon, the dragon of old. I'm declaring war on him because all mankind lies in the power of the evil one. He's blinded their minds, their eyes to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And I'm taking the fight to the devil and I'm going to plunder his home. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He's not fighting. He's not causing men and women to fight. He's bringing the sword to the enemy. He says later on in, in many, uh, in multiple gospel passages, there is a strong man. He owns this home. And in this home are captive spoil. And the only way the spoil, which is us, gets out of this imprisoned home is a stronger man comes and overpowers him divides his spoil. You're the spoil. <laughs> All sinners lie under the power of the devil with the fear of death, Hebrews. And Jesus comes to ransack Satan's home and take those POWs out that they may serve him. 
That's Exodus. <laughs> that is Exodus account. God, excuse me, Jesus would also say, excuse me, Paul would say about Jesus in Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus is not some weak pacifist. The reason he came was to proclaim a victorious war against the enemy. You all have a very, very real enemy. He hates your guts. Now, in the Reformed world, we don't talk about the devil a lot, maybe because we think our Pentecostal brothers and sisters talk about him too much. Two wrongs don't make a right. The fact is, we were enslaved to sin, death, and the devil, and we are brought out of that by a decisive warfare tactic by Yahweh in the flesh, who says the best way, in fact, the only way to strike a blow against death is to die. And by Christ's death, put to death, death. By Christ's death, he kills death, Satan, and sin. That's the gospel. And that is utterly, fantastically, wonderfully good news. As Mike taught in Sunday school, when Christ screamed out, it is finished. It is finished. There might be some, uh, some post-battle cleanup. Bring the dead back to your side. You take your dead back to your side. Let's clean this place up a little bit. But it's done. He still has to come back. But he's reigning now. Christ is reigning now. He's a king now. His earthly life is over. But his heavenly session, his heavenly ministry has begun. And when he ascended, you then had a king on your side who was also your brother. Imagine that. I don't know how many of you have, well, some obviously siblings. Imagine like your very own brother is your king. Yes, he's on my side. <laughs> Smite that bully. <laughs> your brother, Christ, is also reigning in heaven at the Father's right hand, which is a metaphor. There's no space in God. There's no right hand in God. To be at the Father's right hand is to be in a position of power and authority and glory. So when Jesus is at the Father's right hand, he is in a position of glory. Let me just summarize, close this up with a couple pointed remarks. One, his position of glory means that is your position someday soon. You will receive glory. You will be glorified. No sin, no suffering, no death, a perfect working body. You will inherit glory because what 
Christ has, he shares with his people as a benevolent, gracious king would. Secondly, his ascension, the fact that he's sitting at the Father's right hand, strikes terror into the enemy. Demons, devils, Satan, they're not bold before God. They're not bold before the Lord of glory. You, you know there are many accounts in the Gospels. You can, re, you can think of them as they call them to mind. Jesus is healing. He's casting out demons. A couple occasions. Don't send us over there to those pigs. Or it's too early to send us into the abyss, Jesus, Holy One. They're terrified. The enemy is utterly terrified of Christ. I have a, I don't know why I wrote this passage down, but I'm going to flip over there. In Luke 8.28. Oh, yeah. Luke 8, 28, Jesus heals a man with a demon, this vicious demon. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Not son, because he has come from Mary, but eternally begotten son of glory. I beg you, do not torment me. The devil is shook. (laughs) The enemy is afraid of the Lord of glory. Glory. Our enemy fears our king who fights for us. Thirdly, we are given comfort. There isn't a single thing that happens in your life that is outside the realm of the kingship of Christ. If he didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't happen. One commentator said it like this, sits, Christ sits at the right hand and he sees all our issues and a change of our state, of our position, a change of our state can happen with only a nod of his head. <laughs> If he wants something gone, it's gone. (laughs) If he wants suffering to cease, it'll cease. If he wants blessings to come, they'll come. If he wants suffering to come, they'll come. He is over all. Over all. So the battle belongs to him. The battle belongs to the Lord. So be strong, but be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are desirous 
that 